Welcome to the Flappin' the Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, writer-director Anna Elizabeth James and editor Brian Schofield talk of their new film, Deadly Illusions, which spent a healthy chunk of last week as the number one movie on Netflix, both internationally and domestically. We will be talking, among other things, what that particularly means now. But first, uh, what I watched this week, I was kind of all over the map just watching a bunch of rando Netflix stuff and random recommendations right after this interview talking to two USC graduates who in this interview mentioned some of their USC experiences I watched the despecialized version of Return of the Jedi which you know is you famous USC alum George Lucas you know he didn't direct it but it's been on my brain lately just because a few episodes back I recommended the Empire magazine uh that with the feature that Edgar Wright edited about uh, he crowdsourced uh from social networks and with a bunch of filmmakers everyone's favorite particular moment in the theater in a theater theatrical reaction and a number of people including simon pegg mentioned return of the jedi and you know return of the jedi is one of those movies as a kid i love the shit out of and then as i became a film snob had to turn my back on because of amongst other things ewoks and if you have access to any of these despecialized versions i think i can say all three of them are better films before the special edition. I, I want to be an apologist for the special editions, but no, this, this does I mean, it does have the yub yub at the end, but it also doesn't have the extended uh, Java music video dance, um, which all those, all those musical points were dated anyway. But other things I watched this week, A Man Escaped, which I don't know exactly how I feel about Brisson. Like I'm just all over the map on that too. But there's something about how short and oh, the scenes are in this movie and how fast they go through that the dryness of Rassan and the anti-actorliness still has a great thriller effect. It's just for someone who really doesn't want to have any sense of affectation onto it, it there's, there's a lot of tension in the movie. But anyway, on to this episode. Uh, t- kind of clearing up some stupid things I said during there. I mentioned the San Diego Institute. What I meant was the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, which is at San Diego State University. And the stat they had from their most recent report is that 16% of the top 100 grossing films from 2020 were directed by women, which is up from only 4% in 2019, which, and also, we just got through the Oscar nominations for the first time. Two women were nominated for Best Director. So, progress. Um, Brian Brian Schofield is, one of my, is an old friend. He called this last week, as I mentioned in the episode, and said that he had a movie in the top ten on Netflix. And Brian and I have shared or lamented with each other the this thing about being an editor, you can't, sometimes, especially if you need to take job to job, you can't control how good the movies are. You can make them better. And the way you make them better is so invisible. The best description I've heard of it is uh, one other editor once told me that you get credit for the things you don't deserve and blame for the things you don't deserve. And so Brian was with me the one time I had a movie play at Sundance and something I was supposed to get me more work and didn't. And so I've also witnessed him, like he edited amongst some Terrence Malick films, 
the one I was really jealous of that he got to work on, he worked with podcast favorite director Warren Beatty on his most recent movie, Rules Don't Apply. But he's also worked on other movies for Netflix, including Take Me and Six Balloons. And when he called and said that he had a movie that was no promotion organically in the top 10 of Netflix being watched like none of my friends have had a movie that really I, I think broke there's I've had friends with like like critical hits but not this and what was also interesting was he was sharing with me the Twitter reviews which in themselves were funny interesting and just nasty but also just very in a binary sense like they they treated it like they were dealing with the fucking room and there's a thing about the so bad it's good film genre that I just I just can't get on board with. I don't I still to this day have never seen the room all the way through. I find people's fascination with it to be a little too mean spirited. Like there's this collective let's stick it to those people who are making movies like everyone else wants to be making. And it's almost like like when someone makes a movie that bad, like it's, it's, it's like Shirley Jackson's the lottery. Like you're just wanting to stone them. And so I watched the movie and it really didn't take long to realize that Brian's a thoughtful guy. I don't know Anna, but after seeing this movie, it's clear they know what they're doing. Like, cause the other statistic Brian told me was that people were hate tweeting this and then still hate tweeting the indie meaning they got to the end, meaning they watched the whole movie all the way through. And how you feel about content right now, the fact that people are actually sitting through it, whereas a lot of the stuff I know people are putting out is just indifferently being turned off after five minutes. And my main impression of the movie, Brian told me to think Mulholland Drive, and he mentioned Brian De Palma. And... Mulholland Drive kind of plays, as I, I, I tell Anna in this, where you know the first half of Mulholland Drive has that weird soapy feel, uh, L.A. soap feel, until my friend T.J. Volgaird, uh, who taught Mulholland Drive in class, told me, for it was the first person who told me, which seems obvious after I've, I've seen it since it's like, the main hinging line in Mulholland Drive is, don't play it real until it gets real. And the thing with Deadly Illusions is there's no... I don't, when it changes, it's hard to describe and it still, it still feels tawdry and titillating and more than anything, it just feels like this is coming from a woman's mind and a, a, an unfettered id being allowed on the screen in the low budget. Um, as I edited this episode, I had uh, De Palma's body double on the background and you get to the end and the scarf's there and you can't not think dressed to kill but the fact that the twitter conversation around this movie is good or bad look when you're when you're collaborating with someone on a movie saying good or bad is the most worthless thing you can say it, it, it is if, if you're arguing with a friend about a movie and all you can say is good or bad you have come to an impasse of subjectivity it's like it's the most pedestrian boring thing to say about a movie a movie should feel when it's as complex nuanced frustrating uh entertaining and uh a movie should contain multitudes like a human being is all i'm saying 
And so if you just say good, bad, and you go in this binary de designation for it, you're doing a disservice to the conversation around a movie, much less the movie itself. And this movie definitely has a lot of batshit stuff going on in it on purpose. And I'm really excited that uh, I got to pick the brains of the makers behind it to get to it a little more. So hope you enjoy this episode. Brian, Brian, he and I have been talking over uh, like two or three kind of phone conversations where like first he's just like, what's your reaction to this? And, you know, we've worked on all these movies where we have to like put on a brave face and be like, you did the best you can, but, you know, like, and this wasn't that case, especially with like, for once, the movie's getting seen and it's doing something. And, and also just the conversation around it is one of the things I constantly bitch you know about the show is like, there's a difference in criticism and reviewing. And reviewing's all about, is it good or bad? And should you go see and put your $5 down on it? And who gives a shit? Like, with this much content out there, you just want something to do something different. Yeah, let audiences let audiences decide, right? But review it. Like, I feel like the Variety review is really pragmatic and on point. Obviously, she'd label us fresh. But I felt like it was, you know, I if there's one thing I do in my career is I want to I want to inspire and, and hopefully lead the charge on revamping the way we view movies. Cause I think it's, it's set up to have certain voices fail and yeah. we need to fix that because what's happening is if, if art is a form of therapy, we're, we're negating and neglecting a certain portion of the population that needs that therapy that needs that art. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, when, but when Shane, I, you know, cause I, I was, uh, I was, wasn't, I, I thought Shane would like it, but I, you never know like what somebody else's opinion is going to be. So I was like, well, why don't you watch it first before we really decide if we're going to do a podcast or not. And then like, I don't even think he had finished it. I think he was still watching it, but he texted me. He said like, I can definitely do a piece on this. <laughs> well, you got to understand like the format I've set up, like I've done a ton of episodes on movies that I don't like. And yet the whole point of this show is to only talk positively about movies. So the idea is like, if you don't like a movie, have someone on who likes the movie to explain what you're missing or what different way you should view it. And to be fair, we all have movies we just don't. But I mean, that's something worth unpacking, you know? Yeah, do you- so great. So you felt things like it made you feel things and made you think and well, it goes, I really just feels like, like this is a, one thing I thought of, and this is like thinking of female sexuality and not this old sexuality, but I kept thinking of, and this is going to sound bad, but my grandma, my grandma was the quietest person in the family. And, um, all throughout my family, I've tried to look at why am I the biggest reader in the family? Just because there wasn't really a model. I mean, my dad likes having books, but doesn't read. And my mom read a little, but not much. But my grandma was constantly reading and she was constantly reading romance novels. <laughs> and she was so quiet. But every time I think back on it, I was like, my God, what was her inner life? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's I mean, fantastic. this it, it's just, the, you know, Brian and I also were complaining about the Marvel movies, which, I mean, it's weird because I love the, uh, I love crap out of the Marvel movies, but it also shows, like, the limitations of the four-quadrant strategy and, like, to try to get everyone into it. And it's just, like, you're missing people. People are falling through the gaps, and a big chunk of them are women who are could be half your viewers. And, like, so many of the arts are dealing with this, where it's just, like, why don't women like the movies? Maybe we should get more men to make the the product, you know? Like they yeah, I didn't I didn't want to isolate the men. Like I wanted to make a female centric, you know, sort of tale through the female gaze, but I wanted the men to be like this is fucking better than a Marvel movie. Like what? I've been missing out. Where have yeah. been all my life? Like, you know, and it's like, come, come, like, this is what I've been telling you, you're missing out, like, you should hire us more often, you know, like, I want it to be like a physical thesis of what, hmm. of what the tapestry has been missing. About four or five years ago, I, I, I complained to someone, I was like, you know, I don't read enough women novelists, and, the, and they basically just said, you should do that. And ever since then, I've been reading pretty much mostly women, and I don't remember if it was a line in one of the books I read or just some stray thought, but it's just like, there's a reason guys don't get women because they don't try to get women or find ways of like reading about their inner lives. This is a gateway into it. Oh, I love that. You're saying that the film is a gateway? Yeah, yeah. He means not to get, but to understand women is what you mean, not not get no not get i mean like understand yes 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 i was so excited to hear what you thought of the film like did it do anything for you oh yeah oh oh yeah um well i've told i've I've mentioned this multiple times on this show i've told this to brian before but one of the i find when talking about film and uh especially talking about film and something that's going to be recorded and uh heard by someone else in, in into the conversation Saying bad or good is the most boring, pedestrian, and worthless way of talking about film because it just does not get to how interesting and what is really going on inside of the movie. And just, this movie has so much shit going on inside of it. And Brian was a good gateway to it. He, I mean, um, I guess we'll go into it a little later. He he gave me some like reference points and he and I always talk in, you know, film school reference points. And he said Mulholland Drive and De Palma, but... One of the fascinating things he also told me about you was that um, you made a point early on of not making references and it whenever you were in production. And I find this is me talking as a guy, mm-hmm. guiltily. Guys, film geek guys rely too much on references. And it's oftentimes uh, the uh, those who can't do site film references. And... Mm-hmm. I feel guilty. I, I worry about that that because I've I've constantly been in a conversation where I've like talked about some French New Wave reference on something and just watched the light go out of somebody's eyes and not understand what I mean. But Mulholland Drive and De Palma were the ways I got into the movie. But at the same time, whereas in like Mulholland Drive, it kind of feels like a Peyton Place soap opera thing at a certain point. Like this kind of felt very '90s cable Skinamax for big chunks of it, and. You just don't, the thing, the other big reason I really want to talk to you about this is you're not going to get this from a guy. You're not going to get this like sexual id from a guy directing, writing, directing. You're saying that. You're the first person to say that. I'm the first person to say that? You're kidding. That's ridiculous. Well, and I'm so far on the journey. I think, I think as time goes by, more of this will come out. But hopefully. So when we sent out the script, 
I was very clear in those sexual scenes. I was very explicit. Um, and I, so everyone asked me to write a letter at the beginning. And in that letter, I gave a reason for my intentions with these scenes and that I wanted to prove in a way it was, it was a personal thesis. I wanted to prove that you could make something more tantalizing and engaging than pornography. Right. Okay. But sexual still though, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not really, for me, it's not like what kind of sexual are you? It's, it's, are you in touch with your own sexuality? Like if it makes you squirm, that's a good thing. Anyway. So going back to that letter, one of the things that I said at the end was I just want, I want the audience to leave the theater or their theater room. (laughs) Oh, that's why we need more voices. Yes. Yeah. Because in the tapestry of this art form, we're hurting ourselves by being so selective in this way that that if if art is a form of therapy, then there's certain individuals that are lacking that form of therapy. I I, I don't. It's a San Diego uh, Institute, I think, that it has the studies on uh, percentages of female directors, and it's been going up the last few years. But it's for a long time, it was down from the 70s, I think, and. I mean, I'm in the school that we should be representative in percentage. So in theory, 51% of films should be directed by women. Yeah. And those voices should be represented in the culture as long as it, it shouldn't represent the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I could go on and on about that. I guess going to film school, meeting Brian, Brian, our editor on Deadly Illusions, also one of my very best friends. And a good friend of mine too. Yeah. Yes. Closely and intimately someone who I would trust my life with, uh, my brain with. How many films have you guys done together right now? So this is the second feature we've done together. We did a tween horse movie with Greer, actually. Okay. That was my first go around. So I'm in film school and I'm assessing this. And one thing I observed is that in order for someone like me to get out what I'm trying to say is I literally just have to go rogue. Like I just have Hmm. to go outlaw because the system is so it's situated in a way that no matter how much I try to fit into that it's just never gonna work and as I kept going on through film school and the more I observed with other female directors and whatnot it's just it's a it's just a flawed system so by the time I made this movie it was like fuck it I'm just gonna do what I would want to watch Okay. Um, before the features you were doing, were you, you were mostly writing? Yeah. So I, (laughs) there's, there's a lot to say in this regard, but (laughs) so yeah, in my twenties, I started a family and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I figured out that I was a filmmaker. So I set out and go to film school and I knew intimately that this was what I was like meant to do on the planet. I went to film school with three kids in tow. I have four now. Um, wow. Yeah. And everyone in my circle thought I'd lost my mind. Are you? Um, were you living in Utah at the time when you decided to go to film no, school? No, I was in California. I'm from Northern California. Okay. So to do that, to make that sort of choice with your life, you really have to know deep down inside, like, are you in this for the long haul? So I decided to do like a deeper dive in my studies. And I, I ended up staying at USC for five years. So I took all the writing classes and all of anything. 
because I knew once I got out into the world, as long as I had the tools in my tool belt, I could, I would find my way. Like, I don't need someone to green light me. I'll green light myself. What, what time frame is this? You and Brian went to USC at the same time. Yeah. So 2008 to, yeah. So I think Brian graduated for before me and then worked with, and that's when he met you with Malik. Um, so I was there 2008 to 2013. So Emma's Chance, we worked on Emma's Chance. That was my first feature. That was like 2014, 2015. And then I did Dustin Deride 2018, 2019-ish. And then Deadly Illusions is the last two years. You know, it takes it takes a minute to get them off the ground. You were definitely, the whole, this whole time, writing to direct. Directing was always the the end goal here, right? Yeah, I have no desire to write to sell a script. Okay. Well, I mean, the other reason I, was, I thought it was fascinating to like Brian called me like this time last week and just opened with, hey, buddy, guess who has a top 10 film on Netflix right now, yeah. <laughs> which he and I have gone back and forth about this just from an editorial standpoint of movies you thought were going to go somewhere and then and you thought were good and were thoughtful and entertaining and beautiful and just die in the ether. And it was just really fun and surprising to find one that like is getting attention but how how does he also said that you guys the netflix just called you like two weeks ago and said yeah it's going up in march like it was originally supposed to be up in the summer mm -hmm. well we really had no idea and you know to go back to film school i think also i was exposed to films that in a in a really intimate way and and presented to me in a way that I could see, I was like, okay, so American beauty is this like certain male gaze, right? Okay. Well, what does American beauty look like from the female gaze? Like I would try to challenge myself like in that way. And, and then, you know, I took a Coen brothers class and I was like, what does Fargo look like? Like if I was to do a version of Fargo, what does that look like? Or what, you know, I took a John Hughes class, you know, what is, what does a breakfast club look like? What did you come up with? So yeah, I have I have ideas that are in opposite of those ideas, right? Oh, and, and also uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. I had to do a research paper on that, a film noir set in a high school USC setting. alum. Well, if I did a film noir, what would my film noir look like? Suddenly, I sort of like, in that place, I was like, wait a minute. So all I have to do is just, do the work, get better at this craft. And literally my ideas will just automatically be different, you know, than those because right. I come from a different like landscape or walk of life. Like my, my viewscape is different as a female, my life. One point I was going to tell you a reaction in the movie was I got, I don't know how far in and I started realizing um, how, Whenever someone uses the term male gaze, especially when looking at the female form on film, I feel, if not guilt, I feel complicit whenever I'm watching. So sometimes I can't enjoy watching the female form on film. And there's something, again, I don't want to commoditize an actress in this way, but seeing a female director direct the female form made me be able to appreciate it guilt-free-ish free. Let's just say guilt-ish free. Thank you for saying that because... Yeah, I don't want to be that vigilante that's like, 
look at the man and how he's made my life hard. No, I wanted to create something that was like, come on, guys, I got something fun for you. But while you're here, I might show you some other things that you didn't see coming. You know, it's like we we at the end of the day, we're entertainers. And I want nothing more like Brian and I have been responding to so many viewers. And we're like, we just want you to have fun, like enjoy this ride. You know, we are tickled to death when we hear a viewer has just had like a ball. There are so many people we hear over and over, like it took so long to get to the point. And I'm, you know, I just can't think when you, when you go to an amusement park and you get on a roller coaster, are you waiting for the point at the end of the ride? Are you, when you put on your favorite album, are you waiting for the last line to the song? So you know what the point of the album was? No, you get lost in the ride, you get lost in the music. And Annie's design for this movie and what we talked, everybody talks about these plot points and all those were there and they were important. But we spoke, what we spoke about mostly when we were making the film was the mood and the tone and the feeling of it. And we're and if you allow yourself to get lost in the movie, what you could experience and, and feel and you really get a kind of a psychological dive into Annie's heart and mind in the movie. Um, it's an invitation to, you know, to go a little bit deeper um, into the psyche of somebody. And I, and and when you think about the movie that way, it's just a completely different, you know, the, the people that are asking for it to give them a clear answer, you know, are asking the movie to do something it doesn't want to do. What were the conversations you guys were having? Because I'm definitely going to want to go into uh, what you guys' specifics of your director-editor relationship is. Yeah, I think I think what's interesting, so I, I sold a script to Skydance. That was a big thing that happened for me in film school. I, you know, I saw my path going a certain way. And then when I realized that that was never going to happen, that was like sort of a pipe dream and that I'd have to build build my path on my own. Um, I decided just to really hone the craft of screenwriting. Right. And so when I wrote, when we wrote those um, horse movies, that's why I call them horse movies, <laughs> tween, tween family films, I got to see in action, me following the screenwriting rules. Right. I got to see the cause and effect of that. And so it's so much work to make a movie and in this in this case, I just decided to write in this this feeling that I had. I had this really what, what, what was happening in my life at that moment was this feeling of like, am I crazy or is this person crazy? Like like where you have a subjective view of yourself, right? And you're and you're trying to figure out if where where the mishap is happening, this like gray area and that feeling is so it was burning so brightly in my brain and I was like well what if I write a script based around a feeling versus a specific outline or structure that I've been taught to do what would happen were you going through like like a personal breakup or something at this point were you like going through like was this was this something where like you yeah. felt like you were gas being gaslit sexually or something well it, it wasn't it was more um a mental warfare that um, happened in a relationship that neither neither one of us, you know, it it, it just depends on whose shoes you're in, like, okay. right, in, in that perspective, right? And so, again, 
one of the things I was looking up the original when I wrote the original idea down for the first time the first thing I wrote at the top was like we don't know who the bad guy is we don't know okay and that's that's the feeling I'm talking about like am I wrong or is that person wrong like who's doing the wrong and that of not for for so many instances I I blamed or accused that other person right but then when you look at yourself it's like well maybe it's me maybe I have the problem Okay. So I just I that that place is where I wanted to live and and be and try to explore and and this is what came out. So I'm sure there's like a psychological dive one could do, but Yeah, when you do that analysis of yourself, you you inevitably loosen, shake free some things that have been around in there that 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 are just inside of you that you've been ignoring or you've you've closed off or you you've not looked at because it's too hard and then something else triggers you to look inside and then all of a sudden all these other parts of yourself start kind of spilling out and i think that's what happened with annie in this script is that there was a feeling and an event that motivated the, the journey but then the journey you know the journey inward meant she ran into all different parts of herself that you know she never could have predicted when she just started to sit down to write. Well, Ryan, I told you this, but one of my other reactions to the movie is there's um, whenever like certain mental disorders come up in movies, like multiple personalities or schizophrenia, they don't tend to actually resemble real world versions of that. They're just very good cinematic ways of getting to an unreliable narrator. So you can actually show whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really helpful just like, all this personal st- stuff you're talking about just plays out in the guessing game and, and in a fun way. The the other basic thing I want to talk to you in about this movie is um, despite whatever the reaction is, it's people are watching it compulsively. Like this isn't a movie. This is a, if, if this, this speaks more of people not knowing how to talk about the way a movie gets to them versus just going on Twitter saying good, bad. Like it's, it's not an articulate way or, or, or an honest way of talking about what, why they're compelled to watch it because we're, you know, content as the, to use Scorsese's bad term is thrown on us all the time and we're turning it off all the time and people aren't turning off this movie. Yeah. I also, I don't blame them because they're like, what is this? Who made this? You know, it's, it's, I get it. You know, Brian and I have like psychoanalyzed the last seven days of what's happening. And, and I don't fault them because it is a new voice. I recognize that. And, and you may not get it yet, but like stick with us, like stick with me. I will take you on a ride and people are figuring it out. Right. Mm-hmm. They're, they're realizing, oh, this isn't just what I thought it was. It's something way deeper and that's that we really wanted to take them on that ride. Okay. So you, you mentioned this earlier. You're a mother of four living and you're living in Utah right now. How long have you been in Utah? So I've been here three years, almost three years. And I went to undergrad here and I fell in love with the mountains. I love to ski. I love the terrain. Um, it's a great place to raise kids. My oldest is in college and then I have a 17 and 15 year old, they're boys. And then I have a seven year old. So I don't expect myself to be here forever, but right now, I mean, this is the office that I'm in where we're speaking right now. This is where I wrote the first draft of the script. 
are you going back and forth between here and LA or how is this is like, are you setting yeah. stuff up out of, out, home, out of home to shoot elsewhere? Yeah. So I always thought that I would shoot movies here. Then the state were not too keen on the, the script. And I was very clear in, in the writing because I did not want anyone to question when we got to set what I was doing. So I was overly detailed in some of those scenes, full well knowing that we, we would show less is more, right? Like the idea that something can can be just as compelling by showing less, right? Okay. So we ended up shooting the movie in New Mexico. Then, you know, we had a few weeks off for Christmas, the holidays, and then I joined Brian in Burbank. We edited the movie in his spare bedroom of his home. And I stayed at a hotel down the street and got up every day and trucked on over to his editing suite. And we just chipped away at it. How long How long was you guys' edit? What do you think, Annie? It was like about 10 weeks. It was a pretty normal, right? Yeah, I would say it was the first thing we did. So there was an assembly and you know how the assembly goes. You just, you can't even, you're just like, wow, I, I you know. you. The, the famous Coppola quote is, your movie's never as good as its daily, is never as bad as its first assembly. Perfect, yep. So the first thing we did was we, we like went out on the back patio and just talked for hours is the first thing we did actually. Yeah. I, I told Annie that in order to find the tone for the movie, I really needed to understand because this, our collaboration came together in a funny way where I was finishing a movie I'd been on for over a year and she was starting this movie. And um, for a while we, I didn't think that we were going to, it was going to line up so that we, we got to do it. And then it just happened to work out. So I had read the script, but I hadn't really had any deep conversations with Annie about it or her intentions for making it. And she had shot the whole do you, film. Do you remember I, your first reactions to the script? Well, I I remember sitting down. I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this movie with Annie. But I, I'm going to read the script because I love her. And like, I'm going to give her my notes and maybe I'll get to do a polish pass on it. Or, you know, maybe, you know, I'll get to help her in some way. And I read the script and I was like, okay, well, if Annie actually shoots this movie, then I, I have to, I have to do this. This is, this is something completely different. This is something that I've been looking to do, to participate in as an artist for a long time. Something that challenges all of our assumptions about what a movie is supposed to do and what rules it's supposed to play by. And that was all in the script. And it was like, it was all this, it was just Annie through and through, but a side of Annie that I had never seen her share with the world before. Hmm. And so I just, I just knew it was going to be personal and, and different. And I was cut again, I'd coming off a really long-term project. So man, what would be more fun than to make a movie with a friend in my house again, instead of looking for, you know, jumping right into something else, you know, big. Um, that's the way we thought of it. We thought of this as like a small little art movie that she was making for women mm -hmm. and that I was trying to add my little sauce to, to make it, to make it cool and to really be, be of her because that's, um, what I see my job as an editor to do is to, you know, almost be a therapist to the director and understand their point of view and then lend my voice to creating, creating that. And so this movie could have been pushed in so many completely different directions. It could have been made 
much more straightforward. It could have been made much more uh, of a straight thriller, or it could have been much more of a, of, you know, of, of, of a traditional movie, or it could have been more campy. You could have pushed up the camp. There are so many different different directions you could have pushed it. Um, but, but I remember I did one. I, I I sent her one scene that I cut, and it was the it was the bath it was the bathtub scene, and. It w- and I remember finishing that scene and, I, and it came together so fast because the way she shot it and the clarity with which like I was already kind of feeling what she was doing in, in those bigger moments. And it was just like, oh, here's the tone. This is what it is. And then I had to talk to her to make sure I was right and to make sure that I and to make sure that where it, the movie wasn't so obviously that way. I knew that I was I was reading her emotionally correctly. I understood where she was coming from. And so, um, well, Annie, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, and I also just want to say, um, I think, so I hate writing. I actually, <laughs> actually hate writing. Uh, the only thing that motivates me to write is the idea of giving a platform for brilliant artists that I know to completely shine. Like, that is what motivates me to write. So like Greer, I knew the capacity that she had in her. I knew the full talent that was there with Brian. I, you know, Brian had sort of like in a way outgrown me, right? Cause I'm on this little directing path, these lower budgets and he's already doing these bigger budgets. And so I was like, if I could just get Brian, Oh my goodness, I'll be, I'll be home free. Like, cause I know his sensibility. He's like, a, he's a, he's a visual poet really and he can take any footage and and turn it into that poetry and that's that's what I was going for an experience where you you're so deep in it in your head that 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 you could see two different realities at the same time and really there's only one editor and that I know of that could possibly come close and that's that's Brian and I just I just trusted the process I knew we would get there I knew he would find it and he surpassed like my wildest dreams. Like he took it all. And and this goes for everyone on my team, like Mike McMillan, our director of photography. He really got the material, got the script. And when I say got, like he like understood it, right? These are these are guys who really um champion women. They're true feminists at the core. They they would like never like say that, but the way they treat women and respect their views and and all of that. So I tried to surround myself with artists that I look up to that are brilliant and that could champion the material. Mm. Well, the, my limited experience with uh, working with uh, female directors is just um, you, the machismo ego bullshit of like having to like posture to like show that you know what you're doing kind of goes away. And then you turn around. It brings out what an editor should be doing is being protective of the movie in general and protective of the possibilities of what the movie can be and my limited experience very limited experiences help that but i've also found that um when i worked with friends it can be pretty heated and it doesn't sound like you guys necessarily got to that that spot or that place i don't think we had a single fight no because if brian turns to me and says hey i'm gonna try something your instinct, right, is to keep control and say, no, do it my way. But but I've learned enough that when I let go, that's where that's where the magic and gold appears. 
And so let your artist just, if they have a, an instinct about the story, if, if you, if you try to micromanage that or, or, you know, prevent that from coming out, you're, you're, you're hurting the story. And so you want to, to, to make us to bring the story to its fullest potential. Okay. And I, I just think, you know, it's easy to, to miss, but that, that's part of what makes Annie such a radical filmmaker and such a fascinating artist is that her whole way of thinking about building a team to make a movie is something different. It's not this auteur, like guy on top philosophy. It's like building a family. It's building a tribe of people who have their own unique contributions and her having the recognition of who belongs in the tribe and who belongs on the team and who's going to contribute to the good of the whole team. But she built something bigger than herself and yet it's all from like an endlessly personal place. And I think that's what makes the movie so compelling is that it navigates between this kind of universal accessibility and this like deeply personal work. And in and, and gen, genuinely compulsively fun movie too. Yeah, and, and, and that, but that's Annie, is that like she's got this relentless kind of fun optimism that even when you're dealing with the shit, she's like, okay, well, let's do it. Like, sorry, guys, we don't have time to frown. We don't have time to get down. Like, let's just go. Let's just keep going. And the movie doesn't stop, uh, for, you know, and uh, get stuck either. You know, it just keeps moving. And I want to throw, um, I, I mentioned this to Brian. But one of the things, when I was asking him certain things about the process and the movie or things you guys were talking about, reminded me of this essay that came out in February of 2020 by the actress and writer and, I guess, producer, I think she's directed some stuff, Britt Marling, wrote an essay in the New York Times called, I Don't Want to Be a Strong Female Lead. And I remember when this it came out, there was like multiple quotes in this essay that kind of blew me away, but she talked about how um, a lot of the roles that they were trying to turn women into in these movies were just basically men at one point she describes them give a man but in a body of a woman i still want to see naked um she talked about female goals and certain roles as still being about physical prowess linear ambition uh focused rationality and masculine modalities of power and then at the very end near the end of the essay she she articulates something i I, i've since heard other people have articulated but i hadn't and the quote was the hero's journey is a centuries of narrative precedent written by men to mythologize men. Its pattern is inciting incident, rising tension, explosive climax, and denouement. What does that remind you of? Mm-hmm. A male orgasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I remember Brian and I, we would, around four or five o'clock, we'd go for a walk. We'd get out of the house and go for a walk. And we were on a walk one time and, and we were talking about this idea. I don't, I think Brian brought it up. Because one of the things I wanted to do in the film is I wanted to highlight the female orgasm. And he said, Annie, what the whole film is, it's actually one female orgasm. And what, you know, I think what he means by that and what I see visually, I remember on, I think it was Instagram. It wasn't the actual like organ or whatever you, is it an organ? The actual like image of it hadn't come out until like three or four years ago. Okay. Like there had been a full anatomy drawn of the female clitoris. 
And so it's so fascinating because it looks like, like, it looks like something from another planet, like almost alien-like, right? If it's, it's a fascinating thing that, that we've only just scratched the surface of that anatomy, right? And so a lot of male filmmakers film that way, feel that way too. Right. And it's interesting because I said, I would, I decided to write something that I felt would keep my interest. And what we have is when we, we have these, like, there's really three storylines or there's three different ways you can view the movie and you can find, you know, maybe more, but there's at least three simultaneous storylines happening depending on which way you want to go and that in my view and maybe in Brian's view and what he was trying to say that that day on the walk is very much like the female orgasm and you know we can have multiple like what our anatomy can do is way more multifaceted than the males right so in a way if we don't support female voices we're just, we're missing out on that part of the landscape. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because I think that like that, you know, we were talking about it. We were talking about how narrative structure and all of these things are all rooted in all of our conventions being rooted in like the male orgasm and how it was just built around that. And, you know, fucked up way so much of art and storytelling is like a big, you know, a big monument to the male orgasm. And we were talking about the, the movie and about how it's not, it's not about just what's happening and it's not about what just um you know what one's feeling it's all of these different layers that are interacting and how i as a man physically don't get to experience like a female orgasm but everybody has masculine feminine aspects to them and this like the experience of this ride can put you in touch with a different part of yourself and like you know almost vicariously i mean women have been vicariously experiencing male orgasms for 2000 years or whatever. And now all of a sudden, like there's like this doorway through which we can travel to at least get, um, a, you know, some sort of psychological uh, connection to that and understanding of that. Also like laugh our asses off while we're doing it. And that's <laughs> part of, I think what makes the movie so unique is that yes, like humor and connection and emotion are all part of the female orgasm in a way that they're not for men. And this, this, this dimensions that this film operates on um, is, is, a, is, a, is a mirror of that. Could you speak a little on how that works structurally? Because, I mean, if it's a, build, it's a build to rise and then a fall, like, I remember you, were t- you, you said something in our phone calls where it was, like, just a continual expansion. Like, the movie feels like a continual expansion. Well, you can always go deeper. There's always another layer to uncover. And the deeper you go, the more intense the experience is. So like the more you warmed up you are, like the more the more lubricant you're pouring on your journey, <laughs> you know, the the more like the more you experience, the more like the more mind blowing, the more I mean, you know, we and and those are the reactions, the the places this movie is hitting is for people that are having that experience. There's this one person that posted and said they had to walk away from the TV because they were so lost in what was real and what wasn't and whether they were actually dreaming the whole movie, like the person themselves. I mean, it was, it was, it was uncanny. And of course it was, it was also a meme and it was funny, but it was like, wait a minute, this person just had a profound experience in this cornball slasher psychosexual thriller is what, you know, the, the worst movie of all time just gave somebody like a total 
trip. Like, so what's going on here that like that that people aren't uh, engaging with it? Yeah, the dichotomy is so big and vast. And as Brian and I have analyzed it, because we're like in the eye of the storm watching it, and we understand why that dichotomy is happening. Like we 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 really get it. And so we're patient. I'm, you know, the first day was a little hard to hear everyone just like miss it. But then <laughs> every day I feel like we get more tribe members and those who get it really, really get it and go on a wild ride, which is so satisfying for us, right? And then, you know, and I, listen, it's like, if you don't get it, that's okay. Maybe come back to it in a few years. Maybe you're in a season of life where this is you're not ready for this and that's okay. And just after this experience, I've realized like I only, I only want to do films that do this for audiences, right? That really send them somewhere. This is, this is a pretty unique position to be into too. I mean, like I, I, we should talk like what have the last seven days been like? Mm-hmm. Well, I never set out to make a commercial like smash hit is what one article said. And, and I say that like, yeah, I know that part of that smash hit is having a lot of people not like the film too, right? I just thought I could just gonna make this film on the side and there's gonna be like so many amount of people that are gonna like it and it's gonna be enough for me to make the next one. Like I don't need to get everyone, you know? So when you pull up the world map and you see that you're number one in nearly, like the US was so behind the rest of the world. It was crazy. Like everyone in Africa and the UK and Australia and, you know, these all over Asia. Yeah. Like Morocco, the Philippines, like Cambodia. Yeah. These places that I've traveled to that I felt like, Oh my gosh, these are my people. They get me. And my own country is like a little bit behind, but I know that's, I know why that is. It's because we approach sexuality differently than some of these other countries. Right. And so they're, they, for them, it was like, oh yeah, this is, this is cool. Like, this is normal. You know, we're still number one and haven't left the number one spot in these places. And I don't think we will for another few days. I, I checked before we came on. I still, it was still number one worldwide, at least based on the link Brian gave me, unless he's trying to gaslight me. Yeah, no, the way it works is like, cause I studied it. Each country gives you so many points and mm. When you look at the movies that are down the chute that are going to be coming out, they have a very U.S. centric scope. Right. And I just don't I'm like, oh, wow. Like we're not for a minute. I felt like we were going to fall out of the sky and just disappear. And now I see more clearly that we're not going away, that we've hit a nerve and we probably hit a hole in the market that we didn't even realize was a hole which is the psychosexual thriller is something a lot of people want on this planet. It's an escape. It's a form of escapism. It's just a part of the art form that we haven't seen in a while. The well, female made psychosexual thriller, especially like um, what David Lynch's daughter is. uh, I'm sorry for getting her name. It's like the only version I can think of doing that. Um, I do want to talk about the meta aspects of the movie because that that was my one of the other aspects that I found more entertaining was just the continual like, like I I don't like my dream movies to be too literal. Or I'm guessing is it li- what spots a dream, what spot isn't a dream? But you just kept going from moment to moment, bouncing back and forth so wildly. And whether this was the story she was writing or she was having a second personality, or there was just so many different options. It was it was 
you could pick whatever scene of interpretation in any scene and watch it that way. Yeah. And there were, I think there was a couple comments, like someone said, this dialogue is so, so is so like bland or whatever. I'm like, and that's the thing. And depending on what version of the story you've decided to f go into, the dialogue was specifically written. So it applies to both versions, you know, mm, interesting. There's, there's layers there. And so there it's, it's, Brian has been so good to articulate this to me. It's like, you don't know what you're looking at. Like you don't know it's art until you go and experience something else in life and come back to it. Right. It, it's like you're too close to it or you just, you miss it and that's okay. And maybe you'll never see that it's art, but we worked really hard to create like m multiple layers in every scene. Well, one of the keys Brian and I talked about, well, especially with in, in terms of the reaction, was it, it's not even necessarily about is this movie art. It's that smart people who were behind it and knew what they were doing. And a lot of the reaction that's being gotten from this movie, they, I mean, you never know if people are going to engage, but you guys intended a lot of this. This, this, you, you guys are, are craftsmen, artists, if artists or craftsmen, however you want to phrase it, who got the reaction they wanted. Yeah, we, I had a couple of people message me and one person was like, you made such a bad movie. You need to make, you need to go make two good movies to make up for this movie. <laughs> I, I, I mean, what does that good, mean? Like four sound movies. I'm like, uh, I already did that. They're on Amazon. Go watch them anytime. <laughs> like, I'll never win the tomato game, meaning the rotten tomatoes. Like, I'll never. So it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to do the movie that would keep me interested. First of all, like that's something, I mean, I think that like Anna's clarity of vision is insane to where there are people on the set that literally don't know the movie they're making, like, because they're just, they, they think they're, they're, they are also on one layer. Right. And then, but, but she has the vision to like be navigating all those layers at the same time. And she's like, you don't need to understand. Like, it, like if you don't want to, if you don't like, I need you to understand what you need to understand. So that you, and nothing, and you know, if you understand more, great. If you don't, it's okay, right? And she's able to unite all of those pieces into like this cohesive thing that people, the reason people can't turn it off is they get lost in it. And the, the reason is, is that there's there's these people that I, I saw their comments where like, it's it's so, it's the, it's either the worst or the best thing I've ever seen. And then they say, it's so, bad that it's good or it's so good that I feel guilty for for light but I feel guilty for liking it they don't know how to make sense of it they don't know how to process it and it's because it's hitting them on these different layers and they haven't necessarily the, you know the, the, like well I like it up here but I don't like it down here <laughs> and they are having a hard time of sorting through it all and it's so exciting and fascinating to watch from a you know, um, from, from, from our point of view of just seeing how people respond and how they make sense of it and how different people have such unexpected reactions to it. Um, I mean, the hate can only happen if we strike a nerve. I mean, they could have turned it off. They could right, have just right, right, right. changed the channel and they, they didn't, they, and we get all these comments of like, this is utter trash. This is the, this is garbage, but, uh, I'm going to keep watching. Uh, Brian editorial question. I know I talked, I, you and I have worked on projects where the, the footage was very fluid and we could have done what we needed to do with it and hope that if the director liked it, we and it would have ended up being like the hidden authors of some of this stuff. 
But when I was watching this, and it comes to the point you were talking about earlier, when you were shooting the sexuality, you were still trying to shoot it in a way that was still suggest suggestive. But even then, it still goes down these paths where just there's no way Brian could have manufactured this. Like you shot clearly these these flights of fancies of where um, the characters were going and what they were thinking about. That like this like it goes by what you were saying earlier, Brian, about clear vision. And it's like this is not a movie that seems like as much as tone was is got to be a bitch to have gotten right. Like this didn't seem like something that Brian you did did you? I mean, you tonally you had to do a lot of work on, but this isn't something that like you had to recreate in the editing room or anything like that. I just had to underline, highlight, like support it, you know, because it was all there. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, for me, like, like you know, pe so many people are asking these questions of, you know, uh, oh, my God, like she, she brings her into the dressing room and and tries on bras like they just met each other. And, you know, you watch movies where, you know, people jump off of skyscrapers and people like have shoot things out of their eyes and fly all around and. You know, there the, the it's not asking you to it's not saying this is really happening. The movie hangs a lantern on the fact that this might not be happening at all. And the fact that you're having that reaction is is just the doorway to understanding the movie. Is like this wait is a minute, this disbelief isn't... when it comes to human sexuality is a little little harder to, to broach, isn't it, Brian? I guess so. Female sexuality, I think I said it in my, my letter on top of the script. I said, I want to show men in the world, like we, for, for us, what tantalizes us and turns us on is something more cerebral. And so the movie itself is a, more of a cerebral metaphor for the male experience. It's not top like male, male sexuality is more like, it's just sitting there on the surface, right? But female sexuality is like way deep in here. And if you can turn us on in here, you have us like fully, you know? And so I wanted to try to expose that to the audience in a visual cinematic way. I wanted to ask about the title. Um, the title that's supposed to be a meta thing too right like the the title just kind of felt like a 90s or 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 an airport thriller thing but at the same time it works on so many different levels too it's interesting i when we so when i wrote the script it was called grace okay but when you google grace a lot of religious movies come up so i didn't want to be anywhere near that so when we finished when we were editing, I was toying with other titles and Brian and I, we were spitballing a lot of ideas, a lot of women in my life. We, we all settled on this idea of illusions. Well, what are they? Are they, you know, and then we came up with deadly illusions and I was going back to my original note, my notebook where I wrote out and I write pen to pen to paper uh, before ever going to final draft. And I looked at my original write out and it there on the top, it says sweet illusions. Like okay. literally my initial instinct was that. And then to come full circle two years later and come up with deadly illusions is like, for me, like it, it just proves that that's, that was like what I was trying to say, you know, like something can be so sweet and perfect, but it can also have this duality and be deadly. Right. Okay. 
Well, the, the the tone of it's also just this tawdry title that you would see at an airport too. Yeah, yeah, and that's and and that's just playing in the genre. Like as a teenager or a twelve year old young woman, I read well maybe starting at nine or ten Christopher Pike novels voraciously. I love like the. I'm glad you brought this up because uh, he had mentioned it, and I thought that was a key gateway to this movie too. That that type of novel. Yeah, and then you go on this life journey, and and we all realize that we're just little kids in big bodies. And what did we love to do when we were little? Well, I loved reading those books. Like they were so fun. And I think that I just wanted to go back. And I love pop culture, and I love fashion, and I love all of these elements. Like my daughter was getting her hair done at our salon here in Utah, and she's like, "Mom, everybody is talking about the movie in the salon right now." It is like the talk of salons. And I'm like, that's all I wanted. Like I wanted to hit a nerve in those realms where I live, right? Like where I get my nails done and where, when I go to Target and I'm like soccer, soccer games or football games or lacrosse games or whatever, you know, this is like, this is the world I live in. Well, this also gets to the other pleasant surprise when Brian called me and told me that, you know, he's, he's got a movie that people are watching and people have actually heard of. It's especially the post uh, twenty twenty the pandemic year, even more so than before. There's less a correlation between what m- the marketing budget behind something that people that the studios or the gatekeepers want to be a big hit. If they want to put a marketing push, whether that's through a creative marketing or money based, they're putting all the capital behind the marketing. There's not a correlation anymore. Like hits just come up. Sh- shit comes up on TikTok that you've never heard of before, and like. And or a random movie comes into the top 10 on Netflix with like that was supposed to come out in the summer originally. Yeah, that whole thing has blown our minds. Um, I think the audiences are so savvy now. They've seen everything. They are, especially with what we've been through the last year and a half, I think, you know, our sound designer, Nathan, said this so well. He's like, the movie itself is an id of what we're going through. It is a wild juxtaposition to this this like weird thing we've been in. And so we we're like desperate for something that will pull us out. And but we don't know that it's it's subconscious, right? Subconsciously. And and the movie was written three years ago. You know, the idea, well, the idea originally came to me four years ago after working with Greer. And so to think about this moment in time and how this all came to be for a $3.5 million movie that was shot in 17 days to be right underneath uh, the Justice League release on Rotten Tomatoes is insane. Well, I'm glad you brought up Justice League because just just that a female-centric movie coming out the weekend that um, Disney Plus had like the biggest, with their uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier was their biggest streaming hit so far, apparently. And then Zack Snyder's Justice League. And you guys are the number one movie on Netflix that weekend to counter. And there's still so many there's still so many people that haven't discovered the movie, which we're so excited about reaching. I mean, it's such this movie and any movie like it, normally you'd premiere at Sundance or South by Southwest or Tribeca, or you'd be play at some festival, and then you do a little festival run, and then hopefully some little art house company picks you up and then and then you get on Netflix. And the time you get on Netflix, like your your image has been manicured your publicity has been produced and there's like and there's a package being presented to the world this just got dropped 
Yeah. Dropped. Zero marketing budget. Zero. No marketing. Just dropped on Netflix and said, here, world, what do you think? I really thought we were in like the top 10 for like a couple weeks, maybe nine or 10, and then we'd fall off. <laughs> and then like our audience would find it and we'd recoup our money for our investors, which is all I really, I, I feel very strongly. I have a sense of duty and responsibility to do that. That's fairly important to me. Um, I tried so hard to keep us on a certain budget number, you know, 3.5 million. And for this to happen is just, it's just proof that it's so important to support, you know, our, not only our female directors, but just those that have, you know, unique voices that, that have something that, that, that needs to be said, you know, it's so important then to just water down everything and have it be made by committees. I wanted to, um, um, I think it's starting to wind down. I wanted to ask about uh, Greer Grammer, like her performance in this, like there's something just with her eyes in particular, like is just because, because of the act, because this type of role involves a commitment and it involves not just not winking, you know, like it, it was going to the camp thing you were talking about earlier, Brian, like it's so easy for an act, actor to like pretend that they're above this, you know, and she just goes so for lack of a better term balls in into this this role yeah so Greer when I pitched the initial idea to Greer I picture every scene even the ending and she's like Annie I'm in I'm like really like really and she knows that I have a family and that every film I do I go 150 percent and she's like I'm completely in I'm completely in and, and, you know, she's a very, she has a, a strong faith. Um, she's a very, very spiritual person. And so for her to commit to this idea back then was huge. It also put a mantle on me. Like I have a responsibility to create materials so she can shine. And like I said, I live to give my artists an opportunity just to shine. And going, and also I want to, I want to mention too, with Brian, like my brain with his brain creates like such a perfect, there was like a comment from a, you know, on Twitter or whatever, like they felt like they're in a fever, you know, a fever dream. And I think really that goes to the way Brian takes, takes what's in my brain and, and formulates it and, and creates this, this fluid poetry is the mark of just like a genius really um and and everyone on my team i mean these these artists have spent their lives they've dedicated everything that they've learned like and to give it to this piece is just so awe inspiring i am i'm with giants basically and now we're now we're standing on your shoulders, <laughs> Annie. Uh, about Greer, well, that's you know, that's that that this is like a you know, this is like a like a band for us, you know. Like with Greer, we did him his chance, and Greer trusted Annie so much. But Greer has so much tenacity, just like Annie. Greer, when she showed up to Emma's Chance, which was like a horse riding movie, was scared of horses and didn't know how to ride, and she had just like talked herself into the role. And like overcame all of that and we overcame it, you know, also in the edit to like to create like a really, really lovable movie. And then so here we are years later, all of us a little bit grown up 
and all you know all trying to fire on these new cylinders and trying to go to other areas and other territories where we're not quite comfortable but like that's the point that is to, to push ourselves and to elevate each other doing so yeah Greer, Greer Greer was able to she saw me she saw me do the treatment the outline then the, the script and then she saw the updates on the script so the whole time I think subconsciously she was prepping for her for this role and what what is so satisfying for Brian and I and the entire team is to see exactly what we set out to do everyone knew it on set and to see her just explode right now is like so gratifying for us because we we knew it and I knew it when I when I worked with her on Emma's Chance, I said, this girl is so talented. She deserves a role that is like this. So with, I, I mean, I, I guess you guys maybe don't have the full answer on this, but if the what has happened with the box office top 10 is a correlation to the Netflix top 10. Do you guys have the next project kind of like people courting the next project already? And is the band going to stay together for this? Like, like, or is it just too early to talk about this? Well, funny enough that you asked that I was literally talking to Brian about this. I just got off the phone with Greer and my manager. And then I talked to Brian and I, um, we, we sort of, yeah, we're, we're, we're prepping a, a follow-up. It's actually the rest of the story. So, um, so yeah, that's that's what's happening. Exclusive right now. on the Shane Hazen channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, <laughs> you get to break the news. Yeah. That's no, Annie. Annie called. Annie called me up and said, "Brian, because yeah, Annie, Annie, you know, this is another. The movie is." manifesting itself in the world the movie that is about a woman who gets drawn into writing salacious stories and then doesn't want to write another one and everybody <laughs> wants her to write another one because immediately when this broke in the top 10 yeah. everybody was like annie where's the sequel what's the sequel what's the sequel do you have a sequel ready like give us the pitch give us the pitch come on let's go and you're like is a ghostwriter going to just make a spin-off is that what's going to happen this no is no she I said expected. she said she said no because this is annie annie's like no i don't want to do it i'm not i'm going to do that when i'm ready i'll like I, I have another movie I want to make, yeah. And that she, she, and then, then it when that's Annie only makes a movie when it's the movie she wants to make, and she'll I don't think ever have to make any other movie again. And so when she called me and said like, and this is a scene from the movie, which is something that happened over and over again when we were making this movie is we'd be on our walk, and Annie would be talking. And I said Annie, you just quoted the movie. <laughs> she, she, if it's like the, the, the parallels, I mean, she called me and she said, um, so I did it. I cracked the story. Yeah. Last night I was in the hot tub. I got a new hot tub is like a bonus to myself. And I was in there and I was looking up and it was snowing and I was just like, well, what if I could do whatever I wanted, you know? And then it just like hit me. And it, when that happens, like it's, it's like pixie dust just coming across and either you grab onto it and get some in your pockets or you let it like fly away and you miss it. But it came to me and I could see the whole thing. And I was like, oh, no. And so when I woke up this morning, I was like, all right, I think I'm excited. I should probably do this one. So, yeah. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I actually, I've, I don't know if I've read uh, anything you wrote in there, but I know something you wrote, you, you were credited on the story with, uh, Be Not Afraid. I've read an uh, early draft of Brian's script. Oh, yes. That is something weird. It's a, it's a, I like to call it the Montana heist movie centered around a female character who decides to rob banks and we don't know why she's robbing them. So it's sort of like Hell or High Water meets Yellowstone. No, <laughs> I say that because I love that show. But yeah, that was really fun. Brian pitched me this idea and I said, Brian, I know a good writer. She, she can help you. <laughs> Well, I think we were our our brains were also just in sync because we were finishing Deadly Illusions, so it was just like we just like and just lined up, yeah, and that's that's coming in the future too. Yeah, and I, I think like one of my strengths is is structure, right? And this is one more thing I just want to say because we've had people say like this writer is terrible, like she's not following structure, and I'm like, oh my gosh, if they only knew, like I'm the queen of structure, like. That's what's so revolutionary for me as an artist is like I decided to break some rules, right? And it's really hard to follow. You can't – it's not a formulaic thing that we did. Um, but I knew exactly when I was breaking those rules. And so anyway, with Brian's idea, I knew just like his strength is his, his poetic fluidity, I knew that I could help him with the structure of the story. And so – together again we, we were able to birth out a script which is great it's done and um that's part of our 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 little team that we're calling it is called wild the wild ones artist collective it's yeah. the two of us and our and our other best friend from usc uh daniel hannah and we're we've got some pretty hot stuff coming everybody's way yeah we're oh, cool. like a little gang <laughs> yeah i I want to be like at least a little bit critically acclaimed and the fact that like the reviews are so bad and all this stuff I'm like fuck it it's fine like I mean I think most film critics will understand that film criticism is broken right now too just because they were all worried about losing their jobs yeah and, and and it's just such a sweet victory to know I think someone tweeted like it's torpedoes all over the planet like <laughs> you know like we're just like wake up <laughs> Yeah, and it's you know it's it's fascinating because the the truth is is that the like the 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 critical the critic culture hasn't really grappled with the movie yet. And I think that's something that we'll be seeing this weekend. I don't know what's going to happen, but so many of the mainstream critics saw this new thing on Netflix. It looked like a cheap, tr trashy like Netflix thriller. Like they don't know it's an indie movie. They don't know it's an art movie. They don't know it's a fun movie. They just they think it's like just just consumable content, and and they're they're on Justice League or they're on some retrospective that they're writing and they're they're involved in politics of the day or whatever they're involved in as and that's just what happens. But so there's going to be another conversation, you know, uh, once once it kind of gets in a little bit deeper. I hope so, because I, I, I mean, I like to think of it also that this isn't just because critics are incurious or ignorant. This is market incentives that are keeping them away from doing it. And if they they if they see this movie catching on with so many people and they want their their finger on the pulse of something, they're going to want to write about this. So I hope so. Well, the, the ending has been quite it's been a comical thing because I did not think it was a big deal and it has become the biggest deal online, but it's cause what's happening is people are watching and they're frustrated and I don't want them frustrated, but 
they're like, what, you know, and so people, the, these news outlets want these clicks, you know, and so it's sort of, it's, it's feeling the flame. Well, I didn't, I didn't think much of the, the, the ending was a bigger deal either. Brian, I know you were asking me about it. The, the quote I wrote down was, as long as you survive your dream, that's all that matters. That's the line I wrote down. That, that's, that's, well, Greer's, that's Greer's line. And it's so funny you bring up that line because um, <laughs> it's just, it's really interesting you bring that up. Mm. You know, like, I don't know. It's just crazy. Uh, Anna Elizabeth Janes, Brian Schofield, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Shane. <laughs>